So as I was uh, going through the uh, book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 14 through 22, I got to thinking how um, the sermons there are seem to be pretty pretty short. Have you ever wondered why Acts has these short sermons, these uh, short little discourses? Have you wondered why and how Peter could preach a, a discourse that maybe takes three minutes at max to read, and then that discourse actually convinces 3,000 people to believe in Jesus Christ? Well, if that was the case, I would say that we don't need to have an hour-long sermon. We just have a five-minute sermon and then go home. Maybe the church would be more effective if that was the case, right? Maybe a complete verse-by-verse exposition of Holy Scriptures isn't really all that necessary. But as we take a closer reading of the, the passage, it indicates that what we have is actually just no more than an outline of Peter's sermon. And that, it, even for the, the modern-day pastor to properly preach just this sermon could occupy two or three, maybe even four hours. How do you like that? Exciting. You see, Peter didn't preach sermonettes for Christianettes. He preached the entire discourse, and Acts 2.40 says, with many other words. Now, a lot of people go to churches with the mindset well, I don't need deep teaching. I just want to hear something that really just warms my heart. Gives me that liver quiver. Just, oh, that's so good. Or, you know what? I want to be part of group therapy. That's what I desire. Well, the truth is that churches are becoming these mega churches not because they're deep teaching of the Word of God, it's because their sermons that are being preached don't offer any depth. And so people are more than willing to sit for just a little bitty sermon and then a lot of music and, you know, tell me how I can live my life better. But sermons that have been preached in, through history really refute that idea. For example, there is incredible deep sermons from Martin Luther, John Calvin from the 1500s, from uh, Jonathan Edwards and George, George Whitfield in the 1700s. And then we have R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur, Paul Washer, Vody Bauckham. And that, uh, they, that takes a different kind of preaching than what happens in most uh, churches today, but you see those men have stuck with the Word of God and the importance of the depth of getting into the Word. And so having read a lot of these men's works, I can tell you that these were men of God and are men of God who are mightily used of God, and they weren't shallow. They were serious. They were systematic teachers of the Word of God, and they taught, and some still teach, the deep things of God. The truth is most churches today 
have lost this focus. Today, and then on next Lord's Day, God willing, we will look at Peter's main argument, which is that the coming of the Spirit means that God has acted in Jesus Christ to bring last day salvation to the house of Israel. Verses 1 through 3 of Acts could be given the, the title, The Coming of the Holy Spirit. And then 14 through 41 could be Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And I would say that would be a pretty straightforward division between these two sections of the second chapter of Acts. And we can easily see it this way because the first, we have the event, and then we have, after that, the exp explanation of the event. And that's how a lot of the Bible is actually put together. The rhythm of the Bible is a lot like the rhythm of a heartbeat. There's two distinctions between the connected parts. The Bible tends to be organized around events and then the explanation of those events. So most obviously, we have the event of the cross. The climax of the gospel narratives is the incredible fact of the uh, mind-blowing event of Jesus' death on the cross. And this is literally the most earth-shattering event in human history. But we only know that because after the event of Christ on the cross, there are pages and pages and pages in your Bible of explanation of how and why that all took place. A bit farther in the New Testament is... Uh, uh, or a, a fair bit of the New Testament is dedicated to explaining why uh, that happened and what it means that it did happen. And that's the same that, uh, way that it was explained in the Old Testament. There are great events in the Old Testament, such as the exodus and the exile of Israel, and then after, it's told why those events happened. And what does it mean that God chooses a lowly people and works powerfully and sovereignly on their, their behalf. And what does it mean that he punishes them by allowing them to be defeated, to be humbled, to be taken away in exile? And then what does it mean when he reverses their fortunes and then punishes their oppressors and then sets them free again and reestablishes them in their former ho uh, homeland? What does this all mean? Well, a great deal of the Bible is dedicated to explaining those earth-shattering events. And it's no different here in the book of Acts. Some things really, uh, these big things happen in the first part of Acts chapter 2. And so now we're in the second part, and now we get the explanation of what happened in, in the first part. And if you remember where we left off last week, there were some fools who were sitting there listening to Peter and seeing all of this stuff that's happening. And what did they say? They said, well, listen, they're all speaking this language we don't understand. They must be full of new wine. But that wasn't it. These people are changed. And there's no doubt about that. Because now they're under the influence of something new. 
Something that they didn't have, but it isn't wine. It's, they're under the, the power of the Holy Spirit. They're under the dawning of a whole new biblical age. And that's what Peter is saying while under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Peter in this sermon offers the authoritative and scripturated interpretation of these miraculous events. And last week we spent a lot of time dealing with the controversial content and complicated language so that we could explore Peter's argument as a whole this week. So with that, let's go ahead and turn to our text found in Acts chapter 2, and we'll start with verse 14. Starting with verse 14, and we'll go all the way through uh, verse 22. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all those who dwell in Jerusalem... Let this be known to you, and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Now, when we come to this section of Scripture, the first thing we find is the teaching of the Holy Spirit launches a new program into the church age. And when we look at this text, we get to see what an apostolic preaching and teaching ministry was actually like. In fact, we get to see a sermon in print. The sermon was preached by Peter and written down for us by Dr. Luke. And at the time Peter preaches this sermon, he doesn't have the New Testament, but he does have the Old Testament. And not only did he have it, he knew it and used it. And I find it very interesting that as soon as the Holy Spirit takes up residency in the apostles, they start preaching the truth of Jesus Christ. They start unlocking the doctrine behind Christ's teaching. When the Holy Spirit is dominating a person's life, what happens? They're prompted to witness for him. When Peter preached this sermon, 
The results are amazing. When he, he says that Israel needs to know what is going to happen, and so do we. And so the basic point that Peter says is that the presence of the, and the power of the Holy Spirit and the things that happened to Jesus Christ proved that he is truly God, truly man. He is truly the Savior and Messiah. And so if we look at verse 14 again, Peter says, uh, it says here, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. Have you noticed that Peter stood up to deliver this message. He's not little cowardly going to sit down and just speak to just a, a few. This is where he is going to deliver this message with power. And what's even more amazing is just 50 days before this, Jesus or, or uh, Peter denied Jesus before a little servant girl. But now he stands up and he preaches this powerful message in front of thousands. In fact, at the end of the sermon, 3,000 believe on Jesus and were actually saved. And the thing that we'll clearly see is that they were not saved by manipulation. They weren't saved by begging and pleading for people to raise their hand, walk the aisle, pray the sinner's prayer. We didn't see any of that. Peter didn't ask for, let's have a uh, strike up the band. Let's have a, a, a stirring rendition of just as I am. No, he didn't look at trying to get people emotional. These people, 3,000, were saved by a powerful presentation of the truth. This sermon is rich in theology, and it was pertinent, and it was positive. When you look through this sermon, I think the one thing that you don't see is Peter going, well, I feel, or I think, well, as far as I know, he doesn't say that. He simply states truth with dogmatic certainty. He addresses a specific audience with great power and authority, and he doesn't open up for questions at the end. Peter often gets criticized for his brashness, and sometimes he speaks before thinking. And most often, his criticism was uh, rightly given. As a matter of fact, in Luke 9.33, while on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Moses and Elijah appeared, appeared and talked with Jesus about his death that was going to be accomplished at Jerusalem, Peter blurts out, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Notice what it says. Not knowing what he said. <laughs> Not knowing what he said. But here on the day of Pentecost, Peter actually gets it right. Peter, the one-time coward, who denied even knowing Jesus, is now speaking boldly with the power of the Holy Spirit. And it would seem from this that Peter was led to give this sermon in view of the fact that he had just been baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
This is amazing. Peter didn't attend seminary or a Bible college, but boy, he sure knew how to preach. The job of any preacher is to explain the Word of God, to give Jesus the preeminence to warn you about the wrath of God, to tell you about the sufficient sacrifice of Jesus' blood, and that that is the only hope for guilty sinners. Now, we get this model for preaching from, actually, the book of Nehemiah. So if you'd turn to Nehemiah, we're just going to look at one verse, chapter 8. And it's the left of Psalms um, uh, in Job and Esther. And then you'll find First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, and then Nehemiah. And this, this is all in context where Ezra is speaking to God's people and instructing uh, them on uh, before they gather for the Feast of Tabernacles. So this is what he's saying before they gather. Nehemiah. Chapter 8, verse 8. So they read distinctly from the book and the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. You see, the first thing that Ezra does here with those who were with him, they began to read and expound the law of God, which they read plainly, read intelligibly, so that it was heard and understood. Now that word distinctly comes from the Greek word, or the Hebrew word here, uh, parash. And this seems to uh, respect the clear and distinct pronunciation of the words that are there. Not really the explanation or meaning of it. It's just making sure you're very clear in your speaking. So some think that the sense is that the first reading was in Hebrew. And then it was translated to Chaldee. And this is done because a lot of the people would understand it better, come, having just come out of Babylon, where they used the Chaldee language. And so you see, that's why when we're here, a lot of times I will use the Greek and the Hebrew because sometimes the English, you just don't get the gist of what's being said. And so it's not a matter of trying to say, hey, we all need to know Greek or we all need to know Hebrew. But you can get the gist of it. And not only that, when you see certain words, you go, wait a minute, I heard that before. You start to put it all together, how it connects. Well, this was done by Ezra and the others. And so now, in order to understand what they read, uh, they, they might clearly know the duty of, uh, to God and man. You, if you look at this, you see that phrase, gave the sense. That's just one word in the, in the Hebrew. And it's the word sekel. And that's to give insight, to give prudence and understanding to the Scripture verses. We see that this was done to help them understand the reading. The preacher 
is to use appropriate means to help the listener to understand the text. Folks, that's just not being done in most congregations. The people in churches today want to see the pastor as a life coach, not a preacher. The, the word preacher is the, word, the Greek word keruso. And do you know what it means? It means to herald, to proclaim the word of God. It doesn't mean life coach. Notice what Peter says in verse 14 of our text. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. I'll tell you what, doesn't that sound like Peter just took uh, uh, Nehemiah 8.8 8 and just applied it right here? Because he took uh, instruction straight from Nehemiah. The Old Testament model, you see, was to read distinctly from the book, give the sense of what was read, and then help the readers to understand. The New Testament model is the same. It's to edify or build up, to exhort, which is to encourage, to comfort. And folks, there's nothing more comfortable to a believer than the gospel. And that's what Peter is doing. And that's what my job is. To make plain the facts of the gospel in a way that even small children can understand it. But the main problem with an unbeliever is that he does not understand the gospel. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. The problem is that he loves his sin more than he loves the Savior of sin, of sinners. And so in verse 15 of our text, it says, For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Here Peter starts off his message. He aims, aims it at those men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem. And he actually, this is a little bit of humor here. He says, you know, these guys aren't drunk. It's only nine in the morning. You see, the Jewish clock started at 6 a.m., so the third hour would be nine. You know, he, it's sort of as if to say, if it was a little later in the afternoon, perhaps they would have enjoyed a little bit of wine. But this is nine. They are not drunk with wine. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. And the promise of universal participation in the Spirit's outpouring is the heart of this section of Joel's prophecy, which made it the perfect Scripture to interpret as well as authenticate the event at Pentecost. First, it would be those who are standing before Peter, but then it would be for the world in that generation and then generations to come. And in verse 16 of our text, it says, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. <clears throat> Joel. Now, we need to understand that the way that this was revealed to Joel and recorded in his book, it was written sort of in, in poetic form. Um, that, that means that since the primary characteristic of Hebrew poetry is parallelism, it's written in two-line pairs. And that's what I was alluding to with our call to worship. 
Sometimes it says, it says this, say something, then say the same thing again in different words, and then say one thing and then contrast it in different words. Sometimes the parallel, parallelism is a little bit more uh, sophisticated. It's basically, here's line A, here's line B. Then repeat the message of B, then repeat the message of A. There are multiple versions of contrast and chiasm and other things that you can do with that. But the primary characteristic of it is that it is Hebrew poetry. Now, when you translate poetry from one language to another, the meaning of the words can sort of get lost. The words are pretty, pretty precise. And so it's really impossible to maintain this poetic form. You really have a hard time uh, reduplicating the meter and rhythm of this poetry. And so it's, it's, it's hard to verbally translate. So the best we can do in our English Bibles is that we, uh, we record something as Hebrew poetry, and that's where we see that that's often printed line by line. If you notice, every time the New Testament goes to Old Testament uh, Scripture, you see a difference in the way that it's written. It's, it's more line by line. It, it, it's a different format, and it's, uh, it, it's different from the regular prose that we would normally use. And so that should really just tip you off that this isn't just in regular paragraph form. This is line by line, almost in a, in a uh, poetry quotation, like we would see in poetry as well. We see this in our songs. They're written different than you would have something written out in a book. And so Peter cites uh, from Joel in order to lead the men to recognize the fact that Pentecost is God's fulfillment of script, the scriptural promise. But also, that recognition is only the starting point. More important is the meaning of Pentecost as scriptural fulfillment. In what ways and to what extent did Pentecost fulfill Joel's prophecy? Well, this is where Christian theologians begin to diverge. Um, it's not surprisingly that the dispensationalists typically perceive at most a, a very narrow fulfillment. It's, uh, if not all, analogous uh, association with Joel's promise and outpouring of the Spirit. The balance of Joel's prophecy, even within specific uh, passage cited uh, by Peter, is said to pertain a nation of Israel and salvation and restoration leading to the millennial kingdom. Whoops. But for their part, those who embrace covenantal theology see a much wider dimension of fulfillment. The reason is, is because of the strong continuality that this theological system maintains between the old covenant Israel and the new covenant church. The church is Israel in a present and new way. 
Therefore, God promises to his people Israel, uh, all those promises amount to the promises to the church in some way. Actually, Galatians uh, 3.29 says, and if you are Christ, in, if you are Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heir according to the promise. So we see that this is not, and, and know this, this is not a replacement of Israel. This is a continuation of true Israel. It said, not all Israel is Israel. Within Israel, there were true believers, and there were just people who were, were Jews. These theological systems notwithstanding, uh, the answer to the above question lies in the careful application of fundamental biblical and hermeneutical principles. And hermeneutics is how we interpret the Bible. But we also interpret other things hermeneutically. And so the first and foremost principle that we have to look at is how is it Christologically fulfilled. All Scripture, from Old Testament to New, has a, a, a portion of the Christological view in it. And so what we need to see is that when we look at, at um, uh, Joseph, when he gets uh, thrown into the pit by his brothers, and then he ends up uh, working for Potiphar, and then he ends up in prison, and then he ends up second in command. And then he is the one who, when his brothers are going, well, we're going to die if we don't get food. Let's go to uh, Egypt. He is a picture of Christ to them. We see this same thing when we look at the ark. The ark. Those who are in the ark are saved. Those who are not in the ark are not saved. The ark begins to be an archetype of Christ. So we see that there's Christological fulfillment in all of this stuff. And so Peter's illustration must be interpreted according to the principle of New Testament writings provided uh, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that he would interpret the Old Testament as how they have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The meaning of a given Old Testament passage is determined by the New Testament as it interprets that passage directly or indirectly in relation to Jesus Christ. And then secondly, this Christological fulfillment is a matter of what the uh, theologians call census plenier, which means to a fuller sense. This full canonical or Christological sense that the New Testament gives to an Old Testament passage does not ignore or deny the contextual meaning of that passage. So the fuller sense is the extension of the contextual sense along with the line of Christological fulfillment. For instance, if we look at the passage of 
the Passover ordinance. We find its ultimate meaning is in the person of Christ. But we cannot deny its historical meaning. As a matter of fact, it's quite op opposite. The ultimate meaning depends on and extends out to the contextual meaning. Meaning a person cannot discern how Christ is the Passover unless and until they understand the Passover as it existed and functioned within its historical context. And then we need to consider the context of any given passage in the entirety of Scripture. And because the Old Testament is progressive and organic relation, uh, a revelation of God uh, in his redemptive purpose and scheme, we have to look at how does that purpose of redemption uh, come into play in either that book or the books around it. And so it needs to extend to the entire Old Testament context as it's understood in its own flow and state of development. And then uh, the study of a, passage, a passage's context needs to be examined in the salvific work in the historical context uh, to bring it all together. And so I hope, I, I know this is, is getting a little bit deep here, and I hope you, you get the fact that you cannot sit there and say that um, the flood was just all about Christ or that the, the, uh, the flood was all about uh, uh, the judgment of God. It was also about the salvation of God. So we have to see how those things fit together. And again, what good preaching does is it, it doesn't just expound on sociopolitical theories. It doesn't just say, well, you know, it doesn't matter about the empirical research and just sit there and, and say, you know, here's, here's what it is. Like when you talk about salvation, you can't just say, oh, here's what salvation is. This is what the Bible says, there's, that's it. No, it takes where you have, to, you have to look at it from all different angles to be able to put it in proper context. As a matter of fact, if you uh, hold to a Calvinistic view, if you don't do that, you will become hyper-Calvinistic, which means that you just are one of the frozen chosen. That you're just saying it doesn't matter. We don't have to worry about what the true context is God chose, that's it. Why do anything else? But that's not what Scripture is written for. It's so that we see it in context and we apply it properly. And so Peter declares what is spoken by the prophet Joel in verse 17. It says, And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Now, the first thing that we notice if we compare Joel 2.28, and that's where that was taken from, is that Joel says afterwards. Peter translates it in the last days. 
Uh, David, uh, R. David Kimshi, a, a commentator, Bible commentator uh, with the Jews, observed that afterwards is the same as last days. And uh, they're given the designation of the time of the Messiah. And so that's what it means. So we see the same thing in Isaiah 2.2, where the last days are mentioned. The days of the Messiah are intended. And so just so you don't get mistaken, the last days, everyone goes, oh, I think we're in the last days. Well, of course we're in the last days. That started at the Lord's ascension 2,000 years ago. So we are in the last days. It, people always are, oh, yeah, last days. Well, you'll know that this is going to happen in the last days. Look at it in context. And so here it, it says that uh, God says, tell the people, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Joel's, the first part of Joel's prophecy in Joel chapter 2, concerns God's judgment. But later... He talks about his mercy, bringing renewal and restoration to his people. So God is going to punish and purge, but the goal is not to punish and purge. The goal is to recover and bless. His desolating hand would turn when his judgment was complete. And when his outpouring poured spirit, the spirit of recreation, God was going to bring renewal to the creation and the blessing of everlasting perfection and fullness. And this promise of reconciliation and renewal and restoration of the Spirit is the framework for the whole passage. And that's what, what Peter draws upon. The focal point of it is Joel's insistence that God's outpouring of his Spirit would have universal implication. In that day, he was going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. Now, in the context of the prophecy, all flesh means male, female, old, young, free man, servant, within the household of Israel. Now, this would constitute a radical expansion. The spirit's active presence among God's people as compared with a theocratic kingdom as Joel knew it. And so this, there's a change in here. God's pledge of his Holy Spirit is importantly wove together with his promise of deliverance associated with another manifestation, and that being the day of the Lord. A day of judgment that embraces all nations. And so in context... God was reassuring or assuring his people that all who call upon him in that day of his fiery indignation would find escape. Judgment and wrath were coming upon Zion just as surely as upon the Gentile nations. But God promised that a remnant would survive to participate in his subsequent renewal and restoration. And so if we just back up just a tad, referring to Joel's prophecy at Pentecost, Peter directly applies God's promise of universal outpouring of the Spirit by going and saying, these men are not drunk as you suppose. But this is what the, 
what was spoken through the prophet Joel. I will pour forth my spirit upon all flesh. Peter made some notable changes to Joel's language and contextual meaning, each of which highlights the principle of Christology that Christ was fulfilling these things and the Holy Spirit was coming to show that. So Peter also interjects the addendum, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Now that's not on the original. And this is to emphasize to his hearers that they were witnessing a fulfillment of Joel's promise that the Spirit's outpouring would be attended by prophecy. Spirit-filled believers would be testifying to God's mighty works of his Son. Now that the word prophecy in the Greek is, is the word prophetuo, and it means to prompt, to refute, reprove, admonish, admonish, to comfort. How? Through divine inspirations. This would also be foretelling things to come. Where in Acts 21, we see Abigus and the, and the four daughters of Philip the evangelist, they would prophesy that Paul would be bound and delivered into the hands of the Gentiles. And so we see this fulfilled right there. And then also in verse 17, it says, your young man shall see visions, your old man shall see dreams. This could be talking about the Apostle Paul himself in Acts 16 and then again in Acts 27 where he had night visions. It could also speak of the visions that John had as recorded in the book of Revelation. And then verse 18 repeats this idea. This is that, that, uh, um, that rhythmic uh, poetry. It says that the Holy Spirit would be upon both male servants and female servants. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. And so Joel didn't uh, declare that. Uh, not only did Joel declare that, but also Je Zechariah declared that. Zechariah 12.10. He says, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications. You see, where God's Spirit gives grace, that's what it takes for Him to give life. Life-giving grace for a sinner. Even to look to Christ. But not only that, but also supplication. But you ask, why supplication? Because where the Spirit shines upon the heart, and the heart is brought low in humility, to see the sinfulness of its sin, supplication is then the crying, the crying out. You know, for you folks that have been in the delivery room, what is the thing that you listen for? The baby crying. Why? 
It's a sign that the baby is alive. Every parent sits there with anticipation to hear that baby cry because that's a sign of life. How do you know a sinner has been made alive? They cry out. They cry out to God. Zechariah 12.10 continues by saying, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And so the result again is the spirit of grace. It's, it's, it's looking inward and it's gone whom they, they pierced. This isn't talking about end times. This is talking about the last days that Joel uh, spoke of with God where the Spirit had already been poured out on sinners and being made to look away from themselves and look to the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's more. Verse 10 of Zechariah says, yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. That mourning is repentance. And the mourning is over, uh, done over the fact when the Spirit of grace points the sinner to Christ and his eyes are open to Christ and that mourner understands it was for their sin that Christ died. Not only that, you start to look at it, you go, I know that Christ paid the debt for all sinners, for every tribe, nation, and tongue. But I see that it was for my sin. I feel like I'm alone and that he ended up pouring out his life for me because I see my sin. We can look around and say, well, so-and-so doesn't, they're good people. Yeah, because you don't know their heart. Whose heart do you know? You know yours. And you sit there and you go, no, it was for me. We live out this life when we know we're sinners. We know we failed daily. We're fallen. We still are fallen creatures, saved by the grace of God. But how many times does the Spirit remind us of that? And we start to think, he paid the debt for sin, my sin. And just a, a little side note in Acts 2.18, and they shall prophesy. That's not found in Joel 2.29. It was probably added to point at the end and effect of the Spirit being poured out upon them. And so continuing with verse 19 of our text, it says, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth be beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. There again, the word above is not found in Joel uh, 2.30. Neither is the word beneath. So by this, Peter may be referring to either the appearance of angels and of the extraordinary star at Jesus' birth. Or he could be referring to the comets and blazing stars, in particular the comet in the form of a, a, 
uh, flaming sword that hung over Jerusalem. And the forms of armies in heaven engaging together. And this was all seen before and foreshadowed in the destruction of Jerusalem. And so in verse 19 it says, signs in the earth beneath. Meaning either the miracles done by Christ and his apostles on earth, or the surprising events in Judea and Jerusalem when the flames were seen coming out of the temple. This probably talks about the finishing point being the judgment of God upon Israel in 70 A.D. And it also points to the inspired revelation was completely finished by 70 A.D. The canon of Scripture was closed. All of that was sealed up. It's done. It wasn't given anymore. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 13.8 it says whether there are prophecies, they, they will cease. And that's important for us to see while we're looking at the, uh, the book of Acts. And so, continuing with verse 19, it says blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Now, by blood, it doesn't mean the blood of Christ necessarily it, 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 or his bloody sweat in the garden. It's talking about the shedding of blood by, uh, of the Jews in the fire. Here, it's not in relation to the Holy Spirit who now appears in cloven tongues, but a fire as the blaze of the city of, of Jerusalem and many other towns around it were, uh, were blazing with fire. This was judgment, remember. And the vapor of smoke, or in the Hebrew text it says pillars of smoke, that would be a, the, the pillars of smoke ascending in upright columns like palm trees. This was a fiery scene. And then in verse 20, it says, The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. I agree with the commentaries that this was symbolic language to throw, show the overthrow of Israel. But that doesn't mean it can't be taken literal too. The rock that Moses struck in the wilderness was symbolic of Jesus being struck in the judgment by God so that we could have the Spirit. But there still was a literal rock. There was literal water that flowed out of it. The ten plagues that God sent on Egypt were symbolic of God's triumph over the gods of Egypt. But still, there's literal background to these symbols. And so I believe that God frequently, if not always, brings signs and connections with the overthrow of major nations. You can actually find the testimony to these really weird and, and wonderful things uh, in the sky prior to these events. There are certainly many references in ancient books. And the same is true of this war. Even the most careful uh, uh, historians of the time mention the extinguishing of the sun and the blood red moon 
Tychicus, recounting this time, he was a Roman historian, he said, suddenly in the clear sky, the moon's radiance seemed to die away. This, the soldiers in their ignorance of, of the cause regarded as an omen of their condition, comparing the failure of her light to their own efforts and, and imagining that their attempts would end prosperously um, would end prosperously, prosperously should her brightness and splendor be restored to the godless. And so they raised a din with brazen instruments and combined notes of tr- uh, trumpets and horns. Tychicus also says this occurred to a thick succession of port- uh, portents. This list um, of miracles, and this was one of them, that the sun was suddenly darkened and the 14th districts uh, or 14 districts of the city were struck by lightning. And so, of course, uh, verse 20 says that the sun darkened and the moon is turned red. We have historical examples, and one of them actually comes from Scripture. Luke 23, 34 tells us that from noon till 3 in the afternoon on the day that Jesus was crucified, it was pitch dark over the entire earth. It wasn't an eclipse. Eclipses don't last three hours. And those listening to Peter's sermons probably would have had that event burned into their minds because that had only happened 50 days earlier. No one could ignore three-hour darkness. And so it's interesting that even pagan writers like Thallius refer to the darkening of the sun during this period. He calls it an eclipse, but then Julius Africanus uh, disagrees in saying that no eclipse has ever darkened the sun this long. Flagian uh, calls it an eclipse, but he acknowledges that there was nothing like it that had ever happened. And in his Olympiads, fragment 17, he says, in the fourth year of the uh, 202nd Olympiad, an eclipse of the sun took place greater than any previously known, and night came on at the sixth hour. The sixth hour would be noon. So that stars actually appeared in the sky, and great earthquake took place in Bithynia and overthrew a great part of Nicaea. So stars actually started to appear in the sky. That means that this was no ordinary eclipse. It was dark. This also rules over an overcast day or locusts or anything. The sun was darkened, but the star came out at noon. Dion Cassius also uh, records these miracles that took place in 45 AD, including the blotting of the sun. And so it's clear that all of this is in the same generation as the generation that Peter preached a sermon. And then with one phrase, the moon turned into blood. No one actually believes that the rock, you know, the moon as a rock literally turned to blood. This is just a reference to the blood red color of the moon. And so when God wants to assure his people of his faithfulness and his promise, he appeals to fixed ordinances. 
And so often we see that he appeals to that by the heavens. Why? Why does he appeal to the moon and the stars and the sun? Why, why does God use those to talk about his faithfulness? Because that's something that man cannot change at all. There's nothing that man can do that would change that. So he appeals to these fixed ordinances. The, un, the visible but yet unchangeable ordinances of creation. We actually read this in Psalm 89, verses 35 through 37. Listen what it says. Once I have sworn by, uh, by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon. And the witnesses in the sky is faithful. You see, God uses those fixed things, the sun, the moon, and the stars, to talk about himself. And then in Jeremiah 31, 35 through 36 says, Thus says Yahweh, who gives the sun for light by day and the ordinances of the, new, the moon and the stars for light by night, who dis, uh, disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If these ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel will also cease from being a nation before me forever. So he uses these, and he's talking about this great and awesome day of the Lord where these things seem to have disappeared. This was a worse judgment than any Israelite had ever seen before. It was a great and awesome day of the Lord. And in the God's kindness, what did he do? He sent Jesus to warn about it. He sent the apostles to warn about it. He was calling people to repent. They were calling people to repent because they had seen many signs and wonders that warned about it. Matthew Henry says, it was prophesied of and promised, and therefore you ought to expect it and not to be surprised at it to desire it and to bid it welcome and not to dispute it as not taking notice of it. Matthew continues by saying the apostle quotes the whole paragraph for it's good to take uh, scripture, uh, scripture entire. End quote. You see, in 70 AD, the sun was turned to dark as well. On the earth, there was blood and fire, and vapor of smoke. Brothers and sisters witnessed the terror of God's judgment poured out on Jerusalem. But notice what Joel says. He says that these things will happen before the great and awesome, awesome day of the Lord. But what then? What's going to happen? It's a day when God judges not Jerusalem for its wicked, re um, when God judges not just Jerusalem for its wicked rejection of the Messiah, but the whole world for its wicked refusal to believe in Jesus Christ. 
the judgment of earthly Jerusalem in 70 AD accompanied as it is the inauguration of the last days and the revelation of the heavenly Jerusalem and the pouring out of the Spirit of God upon God's new covenant people. In a sense, the beginning of final judgment that's about to come on the whole world. If the earlier judgments were indication of the final judgment, the destruction of Jerusalem was actually the beginning of it. It was eschatological judgment. And so this begs the question, and this is, the, just, this is where we find our hope. The answer is found in Joel's prophecy in verse 21. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Spirit signals the coming of judgment and the arrival of salvation. Both of these are end-time realities. Judgment will happen at the end when the whole world has been to uh, the whole story has been told, when all your acts have been enacted, and salvation will be complete. But already the death and resurrection of Christ signals the completion of his wrath, the finality of God's salvation. And so Peter mentions the signs of judgment that Joel talked about. They're not good things. They're dark, they're blood, they're fire, they're smoke. That's not what we associate with good and wonderful things. These are dismal signs of the coming judgment of the last day. His final judgment is reserved for the end. But the coming of the Spirit is a signal to get ready. Nothing but your next breath stands between you and judgment. Nothing but the return of Christ, which could happen at any moment, stands between you and the end of the world. And so the Spirit signals the arrival of judgment, but at the same time it signals the arrival of salvation. You think, how is this possible? It's because salvation and judgment are two sides of the same coin. The coin is the presence of God. God is here. He will save those who trust in Him, and He will damn those who fight Him. It's been said, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. The difference is not in God. The difference is the people in front of him. Psalm 24, 3, and 4, 3 through 5 says it like this, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? The answer, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Because God is coming, 
in his spirit, he will save everyone who calls on his name. Does this mean everyone that says, Lord, Lord? No. Sad. A lot of people think that. Well, I, I go to church, I do this, I do that. Here's a way to think about it. You have Johnny and Sally. Johnny hits Sally. What does mom do? Takes Johnny by the ear. Johnny, now you tell your sister that you're sorry. And he says with a sneer, I'm sorry. You don't see the heart of repentance in that. You see Johnny mouthing the words. To call on the name of the Lord is to invoke his name. To ask him to keep his promises clearly. And in this case, the promise of salvation. To call upon the name of the Lord is a concept that actually appears in Genesis chapter 4. When God offers a new son, it means that we rely on God's character. It, remember, we, it means that we remember salvation is not by the actions of man, but actions of God. The actions of man are in response to the actions of God in salvation. To call upon the name of the Lord is to ask Him to be who He is, to reaffirm His identity and apply it to your particular situation. The ones who do that in this period, the last days, will be blessed with salvation. God saves those who call on Him according to who He is, not making an idol for yourself and calling it God. And then in verse 22 of our text, it says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also knew. I love how Peter brings this back to his audience. He's talking about Joel and what Peter does, he continues his pattern of connecting his message back to his hearers. He openly invites them to check his words against the pre-existing knowledge and subject that he's talking about, meaning go back to Joel. The word attested or accredited is, is the Greek word apodictomy, and it indicates that Jesus verified and sustained uh, substantiated that he is of God, that he is the Messiah and Savior, and that he is God. Jesus was in the midst of these people, and he did miracles in, in front of them, proving that he was God. He walked on water, he raised the dead, gave sight to the blind. He commanded the demons to do what they did. He did things that no man has ever done, proving that he was both Messiah and Savior. In other words, the first post 
Pentecost sermon and the one preached under the filling and directing of the Holy Spirit powerfully reinforces and clarifies by explicit example Jesus' own instance that all Scripture testifies of him. It's all Christological. When we start to think that it is all about us, our present day, we're missing the fact that it's pointed to Christ. Peter's sermon demonstrates the core principle of the New Testament that it's all, the, that the Old Testament and all the recorded interpretation is fulfilled in Christ. And out of this truth flows the previous interpretive principles of Christological fulfillment, census plenier, to make clear the biblical storyline of context and purpose of any given, given passage. Joel's language and imagery in this passage needs to be understood not only with broader context of his entire prophecy, but also in relationship to their place and in, in contribution to God's developing re relation of redemption. This passage must be read and interpreted in, in terms of what the Spirit of God had already revealed and promised to that point in salvation history but it also is in light of the whole canon of Scripture. It's in light of the, all the prophecies that point to the true meaning. And that is, they point to Jesus Christ, His gospel, and His kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the precision and the passion of Peter's sermon. You taught him the truth through your Son and through your Spirit. And he faithfully proclaimed the gospel that you gave to your church. I pray that this body, this church body, Providence Bible Church, would take up that call to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to all those around us. And we thank you for that gospel because that is the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. I pray that we would always have a burning within our hearts to share with others, to cry out to God. Show that we're alive. Just as that baby cries out in the delivery room, make our hearts also cry out. And have us do it with great care for truth and also with concern for the souls of those who hear it. We pray this in the most glorious and precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.